Welcome to Reframe Your Life, episode 122. My co-host Sandy Reynolds and I welcome Erica W. Cantley today, author of Teaching Hamlet as My Father Died, published in 2020 by Lisa Hagen Books. Welcome, Erica. I'm going to read a little bit about you to you. Erica W. Cantley has two degrees in literature and writing and one in culinary restaurant management. In addition to her careers in teaching and the restaurant business, she has worked as a bike tour guide, a private cook, tutor, menu translator, caterer, event planner, camp counselor, creative writing workshop leader, restaurant consultant, recipe tester, copywriter, founding editor of the Gourmet Garage Gazette, freelance writer for The Beard House Magazine, Time Out New York, Food Arts, Restaurant Business, Chef's Magazine, and The Philadelphia Inquirer. She managed restaurants in Atlantic City and Boston before moving to New York, where she worked her way up from reservationist to the first female maitre d' in Daniel Boulud's empire. I hope I have that pronunciation right. Cantley did her junior year abroad in Paris, working a part-time job at the Ritz, and after graduation, moved home to Pennsylvania to teach high school English at her alma mater, the Academy of the New Church, for 16 years. She continues to study and write about Shakespeare and is involved in opening restaurants in New York City. This is her first book. Sandy, would you like to give us a little bit of an intro about what makes this book so unique? Yes, I would, Patty. And there's so much we could talk about, but we are going to talk about this book today. And in the book, Art Crashes Into Life for author Erica Cantley, when she finds herself behind a podium in front of a class of high school seniors teaching Hamlet, as her father died thousands of miles to the south in Costa Rica. Interspersing interactions with her teenage students and memories of her father, desperately sick and difficult to reach in his adopted jungle home, Cantley guides her students through Hamlet, written four centuries ago, while reflecting upon the impending loss of a parent in the never-ending now. The result is a powerful memoir of a love that will not die, the timeless story of the bond between parent and child, the magic created by a gifted teacher and willing pupils, and finally, the exploration of the timeless themes of Hamlet, the study in the transition of power through the generations. Erica, welcome to Reframe Your Life. Thank you so much for having me, Patty and Sandy. I'm really excited to be here. Mm. We, we always jump in early on. I'm sure you know this from listening to episodes and our listeners have grown used to and have been feeding back to Sandy that we ask this COVID question when we get started. Yeah. Yeah. Would, you like to, would you like to take us there, Sandy? You're the master of this <laughs> Well, because COVID has been impacting all of us and all of us in a different way. And I understand you're living in New York. Are you living in New York City right now? Yes. yes I'm are, living in so. Brooklyn. Okay, so um, lots, lots of uh, New York news. And I was thinking as I was reading your book about teaching during COVID and, and about even though you're not teaching right now, I thought it would be interesting to get your perspective on that because I was trying to imagine you in front of a classroom during this time. And I don't know, any thoughts you have around classes and teaching and anything related to uh, life during pandemic? Yeah, well, I have a lot of thoughts, um, of course, about the teaching thing, and they're kind of all over the map. First of all, um, I'm super sad about not teaching through this um, for a lot of reasons. Maybe the biggest one is that you really learn while doing you know, that's really the best way to learn. And as overwhelmed as all of my colleagues have been teaching and as incredibly hard as it's been, and so many people, of course, have said it's the hardest thing they've ever done. Um, and teaching is already exhausting. Um, at the same time, they are learning and inventing what needs to be done. And it's a lot easier to learn on the job than it is kind of in a vacuum. So mm -hmm. while my colleagues have been um, in the classroom or at home or doing you know, um, whatever kind of hybrid that they might be doing, um, I have been interviewing people. I've been taking 
courses and workshop training, but it's not the same. You know, it's all right. theoretical. Whereas in the classroom, it's all, you know, you've, you have the theory behind you and you do your studying to inform your teaching. But for me, teaching was always such a kinesthetic thing, you know, and it's all right. about that dynamic in the classroom and the exchange. So, um, some so of the most entertaining scenes in your book, in fact, are when you get the kids up out of their chairs and you're mm -hmm. really, this is, this is when I certainly wish that my first round through the major uh, works of Shakespeare, I wish I'd been getting up and really unpacking them as freely and openly as you do with the, the students. You, you get them up out of their chair and literally the whole classroom becomes a stage and that's lost now, isn't it? And I keep thinking to myself how 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 students are going to interpret works of drama when they can't interact with one another in order to see to play with the voices for example you know there's that there's a, a scene in the book where i don't think it's from the to be or not to be soliloquy but you have them uh walk around just saying it different ways to one another saying the lines different ways and realizing that the loudness the quietness the emphasis on a different syllable will change exactly the way it's interpreted and the loss of that must you must grieve that yeah, I do. And I, again, I grieve on so many levels because I grieve selfishly that I'm not there. Sure. I grieve, quite frankly, selfishly that I don't have a stable job because, you know, I chose to go back to this kind of, that, that's a, another story, but I chose to go back to restaurants in New York at this time you know about six or eight months before covid hit so i'm grieving for not having the job that i love to begin with trying something new and then now not having a job at all so that's really hard i grieve for my colleagues um because of the loss of that and probably more than anything all of us grieve for these students um, when you live a, a school year lifestyle you know, it's always somebody's graduation. And that's the end of your school year. And it's very standard for a teacher. And it's also sure. a huge deal every time. It's right. Always and and so deal. uplifting, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. and we're hearing uh, not to go on too long and give COVID any more air than it already takes from us. But, you know, there's the tremendous uplift of the energy of the students and each quiz, each assignment, each acting out, each act and scene. And because Hamlet and the structure of Hamlet is such a convincing, compelling, and, and structurally so clever that you run the book alongside your own experience of grief. I thought to myself, what a downer for you in particular that you don't have sort of that daily uplift of the light bulb going on for your students. And other yes. teachers don't in the same way either, but really challenging topics like Shakespeare, like literature, and the things that I think are pretty intense for every teenage student, including all of us, are gonna lose something in the translation because they're gonna be looking at their teachers in a hybrid way. And it made me it made me think, you know, more people are gonna poo-poo Hamlet and some of the big plays because it's not gonna get taught the same way. Um, mm. Your reliance on Hamlet though, and the way that that is a highlight for you and you examining your own grief. So I wanted to jump in and ask a question that the whole time I thought, and this will hopefully step us into getting into more deeply into the Hamlet plot is you do find yourself comparing your father who is ill and you're waiting for the call. You find yourself comparing him to the strong, they're all strong male characters in one way or another in Hamlet, everything from, you know, King Hamlet, who's not with us anymore to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, you know, you really take yourself through compar comparisonitis. So tell us about that. Like, where did you see your father's personality and presence for you in the characters in Hamlet? Well, it's funny. It's a great question because Basically, what an English teacher does, what a lit teacher does, is constantly compare and contrast, right? So I'm always looking for the analog. I'm always looking for, um, you know, how does this story illuminate this other experience? Um, so I found myself doing that, um, and everything that I related to um, that Hamlet was going through, um, then caused me to say, oh, okay, well, so am I Hamlet? How much of me is Hamlet? And then what about my dad? And I kept trying to 
you know, when somebody is dying and you're really getting your head around what it's going to be like, not only what it's going to be like without them, but specifically, I think for a parent, everything that they gave me, you know? Yes. And, yes. and so I was trying to source that. And I've always been that person who tried to figure out why people are the way they are and what part of their story made them this way. And so I was absolutely analyzing you know, my dad and his family and the fact that his dad had died um, when he was young and when he was away. Um, my dad had more of a Hamlet experience with his father's death in the sense that he just got a call that his right. dad was gone. I knew my dad was dying. Um, and so, yeah, uh, it was, it was funny. I guess he, what happened too was that, um, I had, he had been sick for a long time, but he had not been pr pretty well. He had had cancer and he had gone up and down. Um, he had been all right. Um, and then at a certain point in February, he was coming, he was coming back from Costa Rica um, every two months to Florida to get kind of um, cancer treatment. And in February, they told him, you know, the dreaded line, there's nothing more we can no. do for you. And um, at that point, we knew he was going to die within a month or two. And, and so then, again, thinking like a teacher, your whole life is about the academic calendar. Yeah, so I'm gaming it out and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, my dad's going to die before the end of the school year. That's the first thing I thought. Spring break was two, two weeks away, two, three weeks away. I already had plans for spring break, actually visiting somebody else who was probably going to die soon. Um, what should I do with the timing on this? You know, and should I take a week off of school a week before exam week? You know, how can you do that? You know, I mean, just try, it's crazy how you weigh practical issues with life and death issues. It just, your brain goes mm -hmm. to a place where in a way it needs to go, you know, yeah, work still matters, but in another way, who cares? You know, it's like your dad's last few weeks. So anyway, I was thinking about all that. And then I realized, well, if he dies before graduation, he's going to be dying. He's going to die while I'm teaching Hamlet. And, you know, I'm going to be teaching Hamlet when my father dies. And then I said, well, that's a good title. <laughs> so I, I started taking notes and I started looking more aggressively for those parallels. And then I said, well, where is my dad in this play? You know, is he just in my heart um, and how I'm connecting with Hamlet or is he mm. like any of these characters? So, yeah. Mm. Well, I'll answer to a short question, but there you go. That's great. Something that really stuck out for me was a question in your book when you asked, what do I owe my father? And um, in the book, you revisited the time you spent with your dad and wish that you had understood the significance of his restaurant for him. Um, and even things like called him more often, I guess, kind of the typical regrets that we have when we lose a parent. I w just had the question, like, how do you even begin to answer that question when it comes to parents? Like, what, what do I owe my father? What do I owe a parent? I know, it's so true. Well, and this is the, you know, pardon the cliche, but the genius of Shakespeare is that the layers, first of all, he touches on so much. And again, I'm hearing myself say these cliches, oh, the human experience, but that's what he does. And, you know, yes. you, you know, one of the things that we looked at, um, you know, year after year was um, the word O and the word debt and O and obey, by the way, and how close they are. Mm -hmm. And so there is a lot, you know, there's there are two women in the play, Gertrude and Ophelia. Um, one's, you know, mom, wife, the other one's a daughter. And um, the conversation about what a child owes a parent, um, it comes up for Hamlet and Laertes too, absolutely. Yes. But it's a different kind of fealty that's being asked for. Um, and so absolutely, you know, I, I would have on my lesson plan, you know, talk about, oh, obey, obedience. 
and um, debt. And, and so we would look for that. And as it would come up, you know, they're in their seats, you know, paging through the book. And I'm kind of spacing out thinking about, of course, what do I owe Dad. my father? Dad. Yeah. And it was so devastating, um, you know, for years leading up uh, uh, to his departure, the more conscious of a human being I became, yes. um, the more I realized that I would never be able to um, give my parents what they gave me. Right. Uh, it's a beautifully put, you know, as a daughter who I lost my father seven years ago and I, I savored the big questions that you asked for us and those narrative interruptions that you had in the book. And I found myself listing them in my notes, such as what did the relationship with him, how did the relationship with him change throughout your life? Um, what, what, how, what stage of our relationship, what stage we're at colors the nature of our grief. That was really profound for me. And I examined that for myself and thank you for that. Um, and then there's thank the tough you. one, knowing it would be the last time you saw him. And I think we can all go here is knowing it would be the last time you saw him. You examined for yourself how he managed that last time. And I was, because, and this is where the, using the play as a spine for your book was so clever for me, because instead of you saying how I felt, how I felt, how I felt, you looked at your father as if he was a character in your own story. <laughs> and that for me will be memorable permanently of, because I remember the last time I spoke to my father. I remember the look in his face and the exact last words he said to me. Uh, it called me by my nickname, which interesting, you know, you play on that in your book too, but no, these big questions about it as we look backward, Hamlet enabled you to ask that and ask it in a way that gave you an illustration in the play that maybe gave you a bit of distance. I wondered if it gave you a little bit of distance to be able to write about it uh, so soon after you lost your father. Um, yes, absolutely it did. And I'm, you know, I find myself, I'm listening to you talking about the book and I'm getting very choked up. And what it reminds me of, part of the reason why it took me so long to write this book and to bring it, you know, out into the world is because like in a Shakespeare play, like he always dies at the end. <laughs> right. And so, you know, you go through and that's part of, you know, loving and, and I certainly teaching the plays and I imagine acting them. There's a part of you when you start Romeo and Juliet or you start Hamlet or, you, you know, you start one of these plays that it, it, it's the stupidity of the characters that bring them to that end, like, like um, sure. you know, Macbeth or, or Othello or Lear, you know, the, the tragic plot. And, and there's still a part of us that says, uh, they're not going to make the same mistake again, are they? Right. You know, tell me, tell me, it won't end the same way every single time. But the exactly. character you were, the character you were going to lose in your memoir was your father. There was no way for him to not die in your memoir. That must have been. I'm glad you brought that up because how very compelling mm -hmm. when you were writing to actually not want to finish your book because you had to ostensibly let him go at the end. And yeah. uh, I, I know we're taking you to the choked up spot, but I really want to encourage the listeners to see how well you go into the pain and come out of it, go into it and come out of it in your book, which gives a lot of relief to the reader because there's nothing more entertaining than teenagers trying to learn Shakespeare, seriously. Exactly. And like the, the, the characters you created, <laughs> of the student, they are comic relief at its best, a nod to Shakespeare no. there. Absolutely. You know, and, and, I'll, and let me add some levity here about the examination of ghosts. So mm -hmm. you're in really heavy subjects in there with them, but then you finally said to them, hey, even though you're asking them tough questions about losing their own parents and their teenagers who don't want to go there or don't know how, you then say, so like, what do you think about ghosts? And maybe you could take us through a little bit about when you get into that, because ghosts are central to a lot of Shakespeare, but particularly to Hamlet, because a lot of people wonder, what is real? What's a hallucination? A question you actually ask your father. So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit about how the ghosts adds levity, but that was Shakespeare's idea, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, uh, so that's interesting. I'm not 100% sure about Shakespeare's intent uh, regarding the ghosts. I think they can um, 
insert levity, I also think that they, um, there was an enormous amount of fear around death and an enor and a lot more death, just kind of similar. You know, a lot of people have been talking the, during the pandemic uh, about Shakespeare and how he wrote this stuff during the plague and all of that. But, you know, when there are more people around you dying, um, there's going to be more fascination with death, fear of it. Also, more interest in what's going on on the other side. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, for sure fascination, um, depending on what you do with it, it could be levity. But a lot of times it is the horror, the horror. And that, you know, okay. um, the undiscovered country, what's over there. And so what what I thought was fascinating was that... Um, you want to see your dad one more time. And also it's because you see so much of what is infused, I think in this book is the fact that I've always been fascinated by my father and by the father child relationship. And so I was always paying and by death. So I was always paying attention. Certainly for the last 10 years, anytime somebody lost a parent, I would listen. Mm-hmm. And I would watch what would happen to them. And I would try to be there. We, in my hometown, a small town where, where I taught. And for some reason, we went through a space where a lot of people died really close. And because we all knew each other and were interconnected, it affected us a lot. And a lot of them were younger people. A lot of them were accidents, strangely, or, or just out of the blue. So we were really steeped in death for a while there. And when you ask somebody about their parents or this person that they lost, what I found is they would usually say one or two fairly generic comments and then they'd gaze off. They wouldn't really say much more unless you dug. And, but one of the things I would hear so much was I'd do anything to see him one more time. Mm -hmm. And again, they're not looking at you usually when they say that usually looking off to some memory and of course a big obsession of mine in this book is about memory because yes. when people die it's all about memory it's all we have. and how it comes back yeah and what you have left so so they would say that and i thought that was interesting and again the english teacher in me says well there's a theme people keep there's saying i would yeah. do, do do anything to see him one more time same thing with hamlet hamlet right. saying the same thing you know, that's not enough. I need more information. Come back. Tell me more. All those right. questions I didn't ask you before. Mm-hmm. So um, I can't remember what the original question was. That's okay. I'm still taking that to, to ghosts. It, it was around oh, ghosts. Yeah, ghosts. You, you've led into a, a quick segue, which is, you know, and I love that you pointed out that the horror of ghosts because in Elizabethan England, obviously, but I wondered if the students, and this just occurred to me, have had their impression of ghosts colored by things like Ghostbusters and by uh, what is in, you know, easily accessible media. Right, exactly. That they maybe wouldn't have been able to tap into the real fear that Hamlet felt. Rather, they might have tapped in more to the learning from the ghost. And this question of, again, one of these major questions that all of us who've lost a parent, certainly lost someone close to us, say is, what would I want to know if I actually had that moment with them? And I wondered what you heard from the students and what you thought about with your dad. What what would that one more time look like for you? Oh, such a good question. I think we ask ourselves that all the time. And... I mean, I went through so much with him before, during, and after his death. I had a medium. Um, she wouldn't call herself a medium, but she shows up in the book as well. And she um, was somebody who got a lot of messages from the other side. And um, I, I was just blown away by the fact that you want one more visit, you want more time, you want to talk about more, but then what do you really talk about? You know, mm-hmm. what is it really? Do you just sit with them? And, right. um, you know, what was unique uh, or at least less common uh, about my experience was that I went down to Costa Rica and we knew this is our last, last week time. together. 
we knew that because I wasn't going to come back. They buried the body within 24 hours. So even if I had felt really strongly about being at his um, burial, I couldn't have made it on time. And it wouldn't have made sense for me to stay with them for three weeks, just watching my dad die. And I wasn't called to do that. And that's another thing I examined way after the fact is, you know, some people, the most important thing is I want to be there when they die. And as close as I was with my father, um, that was not a thing at all. And as you know, through the books, people would say to me, you know, are you okay that you weren't there? And I was like, yeah, I'm okay. Um, I think that, um, Anyway, so about what I would say, I I was lucky because I had that time and I pretty much said everything. And mm-hmm. then what would I want to know from him? The funny thing about people is mm-hmm. they have they seem to have a set number of stories that they're going to tell you. And if you, especially if they're older, um, maybe if trauma was involved or something and we all have some kind of emotional trauma, they're not really looking to dig that much deeper. <laughs> So, um, you know, I, uh, it's so hard. I think the parents are amazing. Um, I will be fascinated until the day I die about why I, um, had such great parents, but then I never had kids. Mm. And I feel like, um, I'm kind of spoiled. I mean, obviously you miss a lot, excuse me, without having children. But I also feel like, wow, I never got my comeuppance. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, in, in that sense, right? Because then you really feel it, right? You really feel how much your parents did for you and, and how little in comparison you do for them. Well, you know, it's interesting what the couple of things that you've just touched on were things that I wanted to talk about. So I'm I'm really glad that you've brought them up. But one of them was about how unique your situation was that you knew when you said goodbye to your dad that you would not see him again alive and um, and how unique that was. But with the other thing that you just mentioned that I thought of was that you had made a decision to not be there at the end. And then there was something intuitive to me in that because at the end he was on his own anyway. And I know other people that have had that experience where they've wanted to be with the person at the end. And it was when they left the room or when they went to the washroom or they, you know, that the person was free, felt (laughs) free to, I don't know, to depart or whatever happens, that mystery. Um, and so, in a sense, we can't orchestrate the ending. Yeah, they don't, and they don't want us to, do they? And you know, I I have a unique situation here. I I've worked in palliative care my entire adult life, and and my mother did as well. And my mother and I used to joke about this: about you can't catch a dying person off guard. They mm. have complete solemnity about the process. And, you know, the way your father, I won't give away too much, but the way your father kept saying to Maureen, it's like, bye, yes. bye, just letting her know. It's like, on my way out, just letting you know. And, you know, I was present when my mother died. And it was funny because she had taught me everything about death and dying. But I, in, in palliative care, it's known to be like 99% rule. You are not going to be there at the moment of the last breath unless you literally lock yourself down and (laughs) that that is very much you you I love the debate you had about whether or not you should or shouldn't have planned to be there in your father's last moments because those of us who've lost someone and been present know that you would have missed it likely anyway and he wasn't alone as you said he was with someone that loved him very very much and even she stepped away for a moment Mm -hmm. yeah and that's when he, yeah, it was great because again, you, you win. And I, I love that, that you've worked in palliative care because I do think it, um, it changes the your relationship you have with death. Um, and as hard as it is, it's so beautiful. And, you know, again, cliche alert. Um, it's an essential <laughs> part of life. Um, and why wouldn't we want to, make peace if not friends with um 
the end of life process, um, it, it only can enhance, you know, it's, it's just, it's just, you know, most of the words that we use to describe things that are great are, um, have a, a fear component in it, like wonderful or awesome. But the, that end of life really is wonderful in the sense of if you are paying attention, um, there was so much wonder. And I, I do have the, the tendency to see my life as a, a book or a movie. And so I'm looking for that stuff. But boy, that scene um, saying goodbye to him, I couldn't believe it. The air was crackling and it just, it was just, was the most intense, incredible experience to stand there. My dad sitting in the car Good. and me, the bus behind us and saying, that's it. You know, we're never going to see our dad again. Right. Mm-hmm. Never going to be that. You had to air. get on, you had to get on that bus. And mm-hmm. you know, when he dies, I'm not giving away too much there, but when he dies and you reflect on what it took for him to drive his children and his brother oh, to the imagine? bus that day, he got in and he drove the car to the bus station. You know how we fall in love with your father again and again through the book, but we fall in love with him then. And, but for me, and I know you're not going to read it, but I invite the readers to go into the scene where you're standing, studying the hairs on his arm yeah as his arm as his arm rests on the side and uh, it was beautifully written because we're looking at it through your grief and your retrospective and there are many glimpses of the way a daughter loves her father in that book and it was just uh it was really heartwarming for me that's for sure thank you would you read to us would you be yes willing to, this would be a really good <laughs> I hope time I don't start crying it's okay i think people listening now are probably feeling like okay let yep. her read let her read something <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm gonna jump in um toward the end and kind of um it, it just at least emotionally emotionally sort of where we are um it must be painful when your child goes and makes their own life somewhere else How do parents not have their heart broken every day? Maybe they do. What can I do for you, Dad? I wish there was something I could do, I asked him one of the last days in Costa Rica. Just have a good life. Talk about grace. How did I get so lucky? My father didn't have a mean bone in his body. He joked around a lot, but never belittled me. What do you mean? Your father was the biggest teaser out there, my husband Tom said the other day. Maybe so. I never thought of him that way. I guess the difference was I was always in on the joke. There was never never anything but pure affection radiating from my father's funny comebacks and jibes. Thanks to him... I find myself a perennial source of amusement. It's good you can entertain yourself, was another one of his sayings. He had such a good laugh, and there was a special version brimming with delight when something amazing or lucky happened to someone he loved. I ended his eulogy with a version of what I had said at my friend Charlie's funeral a little less than a year earlier. I embrace the idea that time in heaven is very different from what we experience here on earth. Even though each of us who loves David may live decades aching his loss, David himself won't experience that lengthy waiting and longing to see us. For our dad, who I truly believe is at peace, It will be but a short time while he gets healthy, builds his house, works on his boats, and prepares to welcome each of us he loved into the life of eternity. His funeral was a special day, and it felt right to send my father off with everyone together remembering him. I couldn't resist but saying the lines from Hamlet, he was a man, take him for all in all. I shall not look upon 
his like again. At all three of his funerals, people talked about what a big, warm heart he had. His heart, Corazon. My father was all love. Losing people you love is incredibly painful. Losing someone who loves you so completely is devastating. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank That's you. Erica Cantley reading from her book, Teaching Hamlet as My Father Died, published this year by Lisa Hagen Books. We um, learn a lot about grief with you, but more than anything, you're open about the fact that great learning comes from grief, not death. And that is been a powerful lesson in my life what have you learned about grief <laughs> oh wow yeah i i grief yeah you you said it we grief can be your friend and it's a horrible thing to say in the sense that Nobody really wants to feel that way. And yet for me, um, it's my most human, it's my most real, it's my most connected to the fullness of life, which I think includes the other side. Um, but I say that with the full understanding that um, not everybody has that experience with grief. Right. Not everybody can get beyond the incredible overwhelming pain to get to the depth of humanity and those lessons. Um, for me, um, again, I don't want anybody I love to die anytime soon. Um, and I know that the upside will be that um, the spiritual world will feel very close and that I'll, understand life it's just so intense and because life is quotidian because we do it every day and you know the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune <laughs> if you will um the because we have those i think we kind of dumb down our life experience we need to we have to we can't be on edge and so intense all the time Mm. Um, but grief clarifies everything. It doesn't. And yeah, I just felt like that is what taught me um, how I wanted to live the rest of my life. Um, and I think it's funny. I think if you do research, you'll find that people make some pretty drastic moves not long after they have a big, huge death and a lot of grief mm -hmm. they start looking about at how they're living yeah they're talking a lot now about ambiguous grief with covid that the losses that people are you know piling up for people and even just funerals you know there's been loss upon loss when you can't have a farewell and i love your work around farewells mm. um and i want to talk a little bit about that with you um but i think I love that idea of grief being a clarifier because I think even, not even, but I think that's one of the things that's coming out of this pandemic for people and the, the, the grief and the sense of loss and that fear that people are living with is that great clarification and that greater clarity about who they are and how they want to live. It'd be interesting to see where people, how that unfolds in the next little while for people. Absolutely. I think what's scary too is that, you know, we think that grief is the scary part and feeling the pain is the scary part. But as you're saying, Sandy, I think what could also be scary is if we go through a clarifying experience, maybe we're going to find, hey, I don't want to live this way anymore. Or, hey, I don't want to go out every night or I don't want to see people or, you know, I don't want to return phone calls. I just want to, I don't know, have a smaller life. For some of us, mm. that's really scary. Um, for some people, it could be the other way. You know, I don't want to have this small life anymore. I want to have a bigger life. And so 
the idea of a clarifying experience um, could, could be extremely disruptive. Mm-hmm. I think usually is. <laughs> Yes. So tell us, I think, because I just mentioned it and I don't want to um, lose it, is about your work with Farewells. I think it's not quite about the book, but I think probably, well, my question was, mm-hmm. did, did the book prompt that work? Was your exploration of grief and, and uh, writing your book, did that lead you to this idea of Farewell? Mm-hmm. Well, it's great, perfect topic because, of course, we're on Reframe Your Life and... Mm-hmm. You know, in that um, in that vein, uh, basically, I said earlier that I've been kind of obsessed with death for a while. Part of that was fearing my dad's death, but also going through a lot of um, big deaths. And our town um, has a big, beautiful cathedral. It's Bernathan, Pennsylvania. It's a um, it's kind of suburban Philadelphia. And there's this huge Gothic cathedral where we have a lot of services. And traditionally, uh, it's a very creative town. There's a lot of different artists there, a lot of wonderful singers. And so over the last 20 years, I've really seen the funerals there evolve. Um, to where uh, they're not just the traditional. People really make them their own. They have all different kinds of music, singers, things that are spoken. Um, So I was already steeped in um, interesting funerals. I love to go into funerals. Uh, People were like, you're so crazy. I loved going because I could cry, but also because I would hear these people's stories. And and, And again, the small town environment was um, was great uh, for that because I was right there. And when usually uh, people's grandparents or parents would die, um, there even if they didn't live there, that often the funeral would take place in Bernathan, and so people would come all around. And so just I would I went to many many funerals a year, for years, mm-hmm. um, and and so I was already into it. And I knew mm-hmm. how to do it, you know, and then I had done um, several, uh, been involved as a kind of party planner type person, maybe um, as a showrunner, if you will, figuring okay. out the run of show for these. So anyway, what happened was I, uh, about a year and a half ago, I re-met a woman I had known from the restaurant business um, back in the day in New York, Karen Bussin, who has been a very um, successful wedding designer and planner. And she had decided a few years ago that she didn't want, um, well, the way she put it was she didn't want the first line of her obituary to be wedding planner. (laughs) And she had started noticing that in all of the um, different realms of human experience, there, um, there's become you know more and more of a design element, but nobody is looking with style and care and light at the end of life experience. So when she she was saying, well, I'm going to start this company called Farewelling, and it's going to be like the Knot.com for death and end of life. Um, and I said, oh my gosh, you know, that's me. I'm obsessed with that. Let's talk. And so, uh, subsequently and, and beautifully, she moved, um, into my neighborhood in Brooklyn, um, right before the, the pandemic. So we've been able to see each other a lot. Um, uh, but anyway, that is our origin story. And, um, so she's doing this, um, online platform. They have a podcast that's wonderful. They talk to people. She's had, um, uh, Moraka, who does the obituaries, and um, Neil Genslinger from the New York Times, who is an obituary writer. Just this obsession with the end of life. Oh, interesting. So, so I've written yes. some pieces for her as well. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, it's it's again. I don't want to minimize anyone's experience. Uh, everybody has a different feel about death, but to me, um, I like to make friends with it because I think. Yeah. As Karen says, you know, farewelling is all about celebrating a beautiful life beautifully. And I think that we can do that. We can do that for ourselves. Mm. We can do that for each other. And um, 
you, you, again, I don't want to come off as somebody who I don't spend a lot of time thinking about not having kids. But when I was trying to figure out how people would know my dad and what his legacy would be, I started to see this book as my offering. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's lovely. Yeah, that's lovely. That's beautiful. We want we love to ask some questions about book and book structure because we're both memoirists, and mm-hmm. I think that's um, this one really really begs the chicken and egg question for me, uh, which is a I apologize to the listeners for going from sort of the poignancy of farewelling uh-huh. over over to you know, the tangibility of how you structured your book, which I love that you called it sort of a, a love letter. It's a legacy. It's a gift to your father. But the chicken and egg question for me, was right down into the writing process was, and you alluded to this, which is great. It was like, did you, did you start taking the class notes at that level of detail so that you then could do this um, parallelism, which you do. So the structure of your book, which you can speak to, is around the acts and scenes of Shake- of Shakespeare's Hamlet, and you examine that element of your relationship with your father and the losing him, while the themes are resonant coming out in Hamlet. But what came first? Did you write mm. the class notes? Did you write about losing your father? Were you journaling about losing your father in the weeks leading up to getting the call? Were you conscious that this might be a cool book someday so I'm gonna really do this and was any of that an escape from having to get down in the mud that we know is the grief because I know what I would have done I would have and I did it I just produced the book I wrote to save myself from processing in a really direct way what I was facing yeah Patty you hit the nail on the head there and it is something that I that only occurred to me toward the end, uh, toward publication, um, because, you know, you, you hear about kind of uh, postpartum depression type thing. Um, and I started wondering, well, what am I going to do now? And how am I going to keep yep. my dad alive uh, if I'm not writing his death story anymore? And his life story, too, because, of course, a lot of his life is in there. Um, so to take the last thing you said first, I, I still have not come to terms with whether or not this was just a way to um, actually avoid his death. And a very crafty one, because it looks like I am, <laughs> you know, dealing with death all the time and Doing facing it. Yeah, but maybe I was just, you know, finding my own crafty way to avoid it. Um, so not clear about that. Um I definitely had um, enormous difficulty finishing this um, because, um, you know, I had to keep coming back to these really difficult places. But I'll take you to the beginning. Uh, How it started was, yes, number one, I was down in the basement uh, of my dad's house in Costa Rica um, taking notes in my journal. And I allude, I think I allude to that in the book at some point that, you know, I realized I'm down there writing down everything that's happening, crying because my dad's dying and my dad and my uncle are upstairs visiting. And I thought, okay, Erica, you know what? You can maybe take these notes later, but you really should (laughs) probably be up there with your dad. So I had the journal notes. Um, I started, um, uh, writing things down. When the kids said something funny, I'd write it on the um, lesson plan. And then when I was really clear that this is what I was going to do, I started recording the classes. Oh. And so, and I told the students what I was doing. They knew that I was writing a book. You know, I couldn't help. I mean, I tried not to talk about myself too much, but I would tell them. And certainly that class that was um, that year, I was just like, this I was so wide-eyed the whole time saying I can't believe this my dad's dying and now this and so so they knew stuff was going on there's there's no dialogue in here that I made up you know that Mm. truly is some kids said that um so the process that that was the the original material was my notes in the moment um taken in handwritten in a journal also I would do voice memos um one thing that's still devastating to me is i um i took a lot of the 
thing, the recording voice memo thing on your phone in Costa Rica with my dad. So my phone would be on the table. I didn't say I'm recording. He might've figured it out. I didn't try to super hide it, but I recorded all of those final conversations that week. The devastating part is eventually I got a new phone and I didn't download it the right way. I thought, oh, I'll have my dad's voice forever. I don't have my dad's voice anymore. Oh, shoot. Yes, it's really a drag. But it was years before I lost those and I transcribed everything. So um, that was a piece. And then um, then the other thing that I did was uh, I had been having a lot of what I considered spiritual experiences or messages. I had been seeing stuff in nature, getting animal spirit messages. The first version of the book I had written um, – for my grad school project and it was about 150 pages long and it covered the first two years of my dad knowing that my dad was going to die until um you know two years later and all the experience i was having then when i went um to speak to an editing coach a writing coach like what you do patty i uh she said well you know this is kind of too all over the map and um, you really need to hone it down. And it was, I'll tell you what, it was the best money I ever invested in having a writing coach, someone who could see, um, you know, get with some perspective. And she was the one, uh, Beth Wareham, who said, why don't you try just having this story be teaching Hamlet while your father died? And why don't you try using the shape of the five acts of the play? That's great. That was genius. That that structure piece made it so much easier for me. And mm. I, you know, I still was sneaky with my flashbacks. I got everything in that I needed to get. In. <laughs> yeah. um, I didn't stick to those, you know, those weeks um, only. But anyway, so that and then I think one of the most interesting things that I did um, to try to get the balance of um, those three aspects, you know, the text of Hamlet itself, um, the student interactions, and then the dad stuff. Um, I would print out um, a a chapter and I laid, and I I went through a lot of paper, I confess. Um, I I laid it out only, they were printed on one side of the paper. I laid it out all around my room. I was lucky I had a big room at that time to work in. And I highlighted in different colors. I would use one color for the the student stuff, another color for the the text of the play, and another color for the dad stuff. So I wanted to make sure that each chapter had some dad stuff, but didn't get too heavy, got relieved, like you said. I'm glad it worked. Um, Had the student stuff, um, but didn't get so far away from the dad stuff. Because I've had readers say, oh, I mostly skipped, you know, the Hamlet stuff, but I was always going for the next thing for your dad. I have other people saying, oh, I mostly just like the student stuff. So, but, but so that's how I did the balance is really to visually see a whole chapter and see how it, how much of each thing there were. No, that's, uh, I love that Mm -hmm. you got us down in the writing process with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, your, your line and before Sandy jumps in the next question, there's a line where you said, um, you said something about, I, I caught myself with an obsessive need to make everything about Hamlet and you didn't, you didn't, Mm -hmm. you know? And so if that's a, a reward from a grateful reader, it was that, there was enough of everything in there. I mean, I, I loved the student stuff. I couldn't get enough of that, but it was, it was a way to give us Hamlet, but give us Hamlet through someone else's eyes. So. Yes. And I want to just add before we jump in with some closing questions, I have not been a student of Shakespeare. And so I came to the book wondering how I would relate to your story. And for anyone listening, who's having like in a similar situation that I'm in, I don't I think actually it's a great introduction. It's a great way to understand Hamlet if you have no basis or in the story and it's it's uh very accessible. You don't need to have that and I think it's like you said it's it's the structure but it's not 
all the book is, but there's a great balance there. I, I learned a lot. And I was the person who was looking for your dad's story. Patty and I talked earlier. She was the person looking at like, like eating up the student's story. So I don't think it matters. I think there's just something for, uh, it's just a bigger story that a lot of people can relate to. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. Thank you. So we always, we have a few questions we like to wrap up with. And one of them is we love to hear from people about their favorite memoir. So what's your favorite memoir? Um, well, of course I don't have just one. I love <laughs> uh, the year of magical thinking by Joan Didion. Um, and of course that uh, hit the spot for me going really granular with a death as she did. Uh, so beautifully. Also, interestingly, I think it was about a year or two after my dad died while I was in grad school um, that I read Helen McDonald's Ages for Hawk, which is amazing. Amazing. Uh, amazing. One of my all-time favorites. Oof. Yep. So that is incredible. Um, my the the professor that assigned that book to us. Uh, Richard Wertheim, he wrote a book called Citadel on the Mountain, and that was about his dad. Um, and his dad was, whoa, a character that they maybe thought was um, not a CIA agent, but whatever the more secret is than that, you know, maybe OSI or something. I don't know what, but it's an amazing story. And he handles memory so well. Um, and kind of that Citizen Kane choppy, uh, you know, you go here, you go there, and that's the way the mind goes. Uh, so that's beautiful. And uh, I was actually, you know, those are all more recent death-oriented ones, but um, I was reminded by your interview with Jane Christmas that my first ever favorite memoir was absolutely Hemingway's Immovable Feast and mm. made me want to be a writer, made me want to live in Paris. You know, um, I, I had several parties that we called <laughs> movable feasts and you know, I love that's it. That's great. Yeah. What's, um, what's up for you next? Will you, will you write another book? Do you have it in the works? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, thank you. Well, 20 years ago, the first book I started writing with, um, was, a gastronomic rest, uh, a gastronomic murder mystery set in the New York restaurant world. And so I was super excited about that. And I had someone look at it and they said, well, you know, it had identity issues and wasn't a clear genre. And, you know, even though I knew that one no doesn't mean stop, um, I put that yeah. in a drawer for a long time and I started reworking it. Um, but now I'm coming back to it and I'm going to, they basically said it wasn't a murder mystery. It didn't go the right way. And I was making it a murder mystery cause I love murder mysteries. And I just <laughs> thought that would be an easy plot structure, you know, to tell, because I just had so much great behind the scenes stuff in the high end restaurant world that I wanted to make into a story. So what I've been working on since, um, teaching Hamlet came out is I'm rewriting that book kind of as a, huh the maitre d diaries and uh, what's like and that yeah and, and that's been on my list for quite a while um but what's interesting about both of these books is i didn't know when i was um getting the teaching hamlet ready for publication that it was going to end up being kind of um a work of nostalgia because nobody when it came out nobody could be in the classrooms anymore right, right? Yeah, and so now Maitre D Diaries is going to be very nostalgic for a time twenty years ago. It's set mm. just before, during, and after nine eleven in New York, um, in the high end restaurant world, and that world does not exist anymore. No, it mm. doesn't. So um, hopefully, it'll take people. It'll it, it'll end up being historical fiction. I didn't know I was going right. to write that, but wow, right. that's yeah. wonderful. Well, this has been a great conversation and we would love to have you leave our listeners with a way that they can connect with you. So social media, website, wherever people can find you. Great. Thank you. Yes, I'm probably most active on Instagram and that's Erica W. Cantley. Um, 
I certainly people can send me emails probably through my website, which is ericawcantley.com. Um, those are probably the two best ways. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you for this thank today. You. And thank you Patty for and Sandy. Thank, thank you. you. Hi, it's Sandy here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reframe Your Life. If you've been enjoying our episodes and the interviews that we've been bringing you each week, we'd appreciate it if you would help us get the word out about our podcast. The best way is to share it with a friend and leave a review for us where you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about my work, you can find me at sandyreynolds.com. I have a special PDF file available with my newsletter for anyone who struggled with people pleasing. And if you're interested in finding out more about the writing process and crafting your own memoir, check out pattymhall.com. And thank you for listening.